Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra podcast. I'm Sarah O'Keefe, and what you just heard was a clip of Whelan's Riverdance, a symphonic suite from our last concert in December. So this episode, I'm going to talk to Linus Lerner. He's the artistic director for the Southern Arizona Symphony Orchestra in Tucson. Linus and our conductor, Nick, set up an exchange that started last year when Nick went to Arizona for a week and conducted his orchestra. Linus is now coming to New York for a week to conduct us in February. Uh, we will be playing the Sibelius Symphony No. 2 in D major and the Brahms Concerto in A minor for violin and cello. And that's February 28th at 2 p.m. at the Brooklyn Museum. After I talk to Linus, I am going to speak with Kristen Sedovic. She is the first chair oboe player in our orchestra. She's not just our oboe player. She's a composer. She's conducted the orchestra, and she's a very talented tattoo artist. Hi, Linus. We're very excited to have you. My pleasure. All right. So we've never had anything like this kind of conductor exchange before, so I thought it would be exciting to talk to you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. How did this come about? How did you and Nick put this together? Uh, actually, we have about the same manager and uh, <clears throat> put us in contact and we decided to do this exchange. He came here in Tucson and conducted my orchestra and uh, I'm going to conduct his orchestra in New York. It's like a podium exchange. I was wondering how you chose the two pieces that we're playing. Actually, I did not. Well, I, I gave him ideas of the symphony, and I think he had already in mind uh, the double perto mm -hmm. uh, because of the two artists that are playing. They're two Bulgarians. I know both of them. I never conduct them together, but uh, I definitely know, uh, and I was just in Bulgaria conducting again. If you actually conduct many times in Bulgaria, and I met... Uh, Evo uh, in um, in a concert there a few years ago, I think two years ago, and then I also conduct uh, his brother. Actually, no, last year I conduct Evo and his brother. I conduct two years ago, and then Evo played here with my orchestra, and I'm taking uh, both of them to play the Mendelssohn Double Concerto for piano and violin in Brazil in my with my orchestra there. The Bulgarians are all over the place, I would say, huh? Yeah, and it seems that you are too. <laughs> Trust me, I am. <laughs> it's good, though. You know, some people don't have much work to do, and I can't complain. Absolutely. Busy is good. Yes. So it sounds like you have a lot of experience playing with different groups. Yeah. How do you approach uh, conducting a new group of people? Well, first of all, the beauty about our work is that... Uh, even if you did not speak the same language, I have to communicate what I want through my hands, and mm. that's the art of conducting. So it doesn't matter like if I know the group, if I never seen the group, if I never heard of the group, but once I am there, uh, we are from both sides, uh, always will try to make the best, which is using the language of music. So it's really a... a for me, it's a magical moment. I think it's one of the things I like the most is when I travel and go to a totally different group that I never seen, never conduct. And sometimes I have more time or less time to make a result for a concert. Yeah, I, I love it. Honestly, I, I love that. And I'm excited because I, the only thing I did conducting in New York, it was in 2013, I conduct uh, the Mass of the Children at Carnegie Hall with groups from Houston, and it was it was a beautiful experience. So I won't say that this is my premiere in New York, but 
you know, it's my premiere definitely with a New York orchestra. So I'm very excited about your premiere in Brooklyn. Uh, my premiere in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I did a little bit of research on the pieces that we're playing, all pretty basic stuff. Uh, when I looked up the Brahms concerto that we're playing, I came across a really interesting tidbit. So Brahms wrote this piece for two of his friends, um, mm -hmm. one of whom, uh, the violinist uh, Joseph, had been a childhood friend of his, uh, and they'd collaborated and worked together on, on many pieces over the years. Uh, Brahms made the mistake of siding with Joseph's wife during their divorce. Correct. And they they had a falling out. And uh, Brahms invited Joseph to premiere this concerto um, after four years of silence as a sort of an olive branch. Yeah. And the duet between the violin and the cello is very friendly, and, and you kind of see it in a new light, you know, two people trying to sort of get back together. Well, he was thinking about writing <clears throat> just a concert for one instrument, and it was an uh, idea of his friends that, uh, you know, it might not be very easy to get uh, Joaquin, uh, you know, Joseph, to get to play. But if he gets another of his friends, the cellist, then he might have more successful. And that's indeed the idea that he wrote this concert for both instruments. And and uh, one interesting thing about this concert is that not many people liked it, and they said they they see no future on this concert. And even Clara Schumann said, you know, this is not you know it's not the best that uh, <laughs> uh, Brahms wrote. In fact, this is the last orchestra orchestral work that Brahms wrote. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, and and so it's interesting about this concert that later on, everybody said, you know, this is never going to really live through the future. And I always say, you know, like, uh, if, it, if it wasn't for maybe this kind of fight or siding uh, against uh, Joseph, that we would have this concert. Sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. bad things happen, and we have now a legacy on one absolutely beautiful concert. Yeah. Now, the Sibelius Symphony I conducted before, and it's a tour de force, I absolutely love. It's the most popular symphony of Sibelius, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, how sort of nationalist or going against Russia at the time, everything it was. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know for sure, but uh, it definitely has... Uh, a tremendous power on, on its melodies, on his themes. I'd read that as well. So Sibelius, as most people know, was born in Finland, and his music is very closely tied to Finnish nationalism and culture. Um, and he was writing this at a time when Finland was sort of waking up to its own folk music and language, and uh, his music is very fiercely national. Yeah, he never seemed to quite confirm whether or not this piece uh, was supposed to be so closely connected to Finland's struggle against the Russian Empire, but but it's commonly seen as that, and it is this big, boisterous piece. Yeah, it's, it's a very bold symphony. It's a very unconventional work, and um, I, I I would say, <clears throat> you know, I'm very fan of of Sibelius. I just did the number one in Mexico in Acapulco with a very good orchestra there, mm. uh, and um, a lot of Russians playing, by the way. <laughs> Sibelius number one, and it's very powerful too. And uh, I was, you know, I just 
overwhelmed with the beauty of, of the work of Sibelius. Mm-hmm. Um, I had noticed a very significant uptick in the amount of Sibelius that's been performed recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that last year was the 150th anniversary of his death. That's probably why yeah, I did I did myself some Sibelius exactly because of that. Yeah, well, it's a, a really wonderful piece, and I, I'm excited to play it in a big auditorium. So you are already rehearsing the piece, you said, or are you going to start to rehearse soon? Correct. Uh, we've been rehearsing uh, since January. How is people taking, how they are enjoying? Uh, it's going well. You know, it's been really interesting rehearsing it with Nick because we are doing our best to sort of be a, a blank slate for when you come in and we don't want to develop, you know, any habits with the music that, that aren't really on the page, right? I love that you guys doing that. I understand. I've done prepare preparations as well for other conductors and I try to do exactly the same. I tell the orchestra, Excellent. I'm not going to put much of my interpretation here because I don't want you to guys get uh, lean into this mm-hmm. idea. The guy can change totally or whoever comes. Um, so let's just rehearse as it is. And exactly, I've done that as well. Wonderful. <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited to, to see and, and to work with you uh, guys there. And, you know, very interesting also to see that you play in a beautiful place, I, I assume, right? It's a it's a museum, Brooklyn Museum, right? It is, yes. It's a really wonderful museum. I'd say it's one of my favorite in the city. So you should definitely take a moment to, to walk around if you can. Fantastic. And the acoustics must be good as well, right? Yeah, the acoustics are, they are. Yeah, it's a, it's a good auditorium. We are very happy to be there. Well, Thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited to meet you in person and, and rehearse with you. I'm very excited, and I think we can make some magic because a, a, a community orchestra sometimes uh, can play much more inspired than so many professional orchestras because they play because mm. they love playing. And it's wonderful to work with these groups uh, uh, around that they're just doing music for the beauty of it. And I really love that when you work with people that want to do music because they love music and it's not just a job that they go every day well thank you that's really wonderful to hear i i think we feel the same way wonderful Um, looking forward to meeting you guys then same same looking forward to meeting you thank you Hi, Kristen. Hi, how are you? Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. So how long have you been with the orchestra? I joined the orchestra in, I don't know, February of 2009. It was shortly after I moved to New York. And the first thing I did was email a bunch of different groups, bands, orchestras. I needed to play again. And it had been a while after college. Um, And they just happened to have an opening. Mm. Um, Some woman had recently quit. And they needed me to fill in for the um, the Runaway Bunny concert. The Runaway Bunny <laughs> yeah. concert? The Runaway Bunny concert was one of the pieces on that concert. I honestly don't remember what else we played. Uh, but they needed me. Mm-hmm. And that's when I met Nick Grastigar. And uh, the rest is history. I've been there. I've only missed a couple of concerts. That's great. And Nick is your fellow oboe player. Yeah. Oboist. 
Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, Nick Rastigar is a fantastic oboe player, and he also happens to be my best friend from being in this group. That's awesome. That's very similar to, to the way I found the group, too. I spent a couple years after college not playing very much. Mm-hmm. So did you study music? Were you, was this a, a name of yours to, to come to New York and play more? Um, it sort of happened a little more organically. Yeah. Um, I'd always wanted to live in New York, but that wasn't like a goal or something that I was building toward even. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to school at DePaul uh, in Chicago and yeah. started out oboe performance, but knew I was not disciplined enough to petition a major in that. So I switched to music composition, which mm. I was kind of doing for fun anyway. Um, finished my final project a little bit late, never got it read. I was not, I didn't apply myself as well as I should have. Um, but it kind of worked out in a different path. I moved here in at the end of 2008 um, when a day job of mine had ended and I had some severance and it was just the right time. So I moved here and then just started emailing to play in a group. I had played in the Ravenswood Community Orchestra in Chicago uh, for a little bit. But I'd say I took like a good year and a half break uh, after college because I was just sort of burned out. Um, And then, you know, you realize, I think the great thing about this orchestra is you realize it's such a huge part of your identity that you can't spend that many years of your life. You know, I started when I was like 10 years old. You can't spend that huge chunk of your life and then just give it up. And like, I felt like I didn't know who I was without being a band nerd, an orchestra nerd yeah. and with my oboe. Once a music kid, always a music kid. Yeah. So what do you, I don't know very much about uh, what goes into playing an oboe. I know that it's one of the more difficult wind instruments, if not the most difficult. And with reeds, so do you, you have to cut them yourself, right? So the reed is two pieces of wood that you play through, and that takes some work, right? Yeah, in theory, I uh, would make reeds, but I okay. or am supposed to, and, yeah. and I was taught how. Yeah. Um, but I was always terrible at it. You're making a tiny little sculpture yeah. on wood that varies from, you know, being like soggy cardboard to like reed where the, the grains of it are like really nice and... Yeah. And smooth. And How quickly then, do you go through them? Um, I am not the right person to ask this because I am notorious for keeping my reeds and long after they're like dying. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a, a really good oboist who's playing professionally all the time will always have at least three, but more like ten reeds uh, in a case with a humidifier on backup. You're constantly rotating them, testing them. Because they change if you look at them funny mm-hmm. um, with weather like this, mm-hmm. when it's dry and cold and all, all back and forth like it has been. My best read at one rehearsal like won't even play the next week. Wow. So And that'll catch you off guard if you're not playing every day. Yeah. I don't play every day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that can be very, very frustrating. Yeah, that sounds very high maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. It's really high maintenance. And that's a... A big reason that a lot of people quit oboe. So I do not make reeds. I order them from Edmund Nielsen uh, Woodwind Company in Chicago because I've I've had good luck with that since I was a kid. And then if you get them, you can always tweak them. Some yeah. of them you might you might get in the mail and they play fine. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them might just not be playable. It's really a crapshoot. Wow. So um, yeah, yeah. It's 
reads reads suck. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really awful. There's no oboist that's like gonna downplay the yeah that the you amount can of work sound that goes like a into different it. player. Yeah, like you're only as good as your best read. So that's something I'd like everyone in the orchestra to understand <laughs> <laughs> and to be well, forgiving. You guys always sound lovely. Oh, thank so. you. So you also compose. So you you studied. Uh, composition in school Mm -hmm. and a few years ago you composed something for us unfortunately this was before my time so I didn't actually get to play it Um, but I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit did you also conduct I did this was so so tell me all about this okay so this was definitely a highlight um, of this orchestra and like I mean of orchestra for me and of my life Um, I composed that piece in college it was my final project. It was your, oh, that's that's the one. Oh, way back. wonderful. Yeah. And it has a really cool name. It's Garden Gnomes of Doom. Amazing. Um, I'd been in the orchestra like less than a year when I asked Nick, um, can we just have a reading of it? I just want to bring my computer and a microphone. And then Nick asked me if I wanted to have it performed in the spring. And then he asked me if I wanted to conduct it myself. So I was just like oh, that's over wonderful. the moon, excited. Yeah. And my mom came out from Chicago to see me. And I had, you know, sort of an entourage that showed up for that one. Um, and that was thrilling. And so I always feel like, you know, a huge amount of gratitude to Nick Armstrong and to the whole orchestra for playing it so well. I'm very sorry that I missed it. Um, so I always like to hear what people do outside of their time in the orchestra. Um, and I, I know you are a tattoo artist. I am. Um, is that your main gig? Not anymore. Not anymore. Um, I started that only about four years ago. So I am a licensed tattoo artist. I have a home studio uh, in Prospect Park South. And uh, I am currently taking appointments for March. (laughs) Shameless plug. Um, I do a disproportionate number of band geek tattoos. It's kind of a specialty. That's wonderful. All right. Well, calling all band geeks who want a tattoo. Yeah, do Um, it. The tattooing thing, I, I kind of bridged it and brought it back into the music realm because, again, that is at my core, like who I am is a music nerd. And the other parts of me, the artist part, the visual artist stuff, it sort of all comes back to that. All right. I think that's probably about it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming in. Please check brooklynsymphonyorchestra.org for more episodes of this podcast and to purchase tickets for our next concert on February 28th at 2 p.m. at the Brooklyn Museum. I'm Sarah O'Keefe, and thanks for listening. <laughs>